Life can be stressful, even under normal circumstances. 2020 has challenged even the most difficult times of life. You need stress relief that goes beyond quick fixes. That's Headspace. Headspace is one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research and can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. Go to headspace.com slash C-suite for a free one-month trial. Headspace.com slash C-suite. cares about Main Street? Do you think your financial planner actually cares about you? Do you think, you know, the, the guy you're sending your money through through your 401k, do you think they're really on your side? Do you really? Do you really think that? Another question is this, you know, how many people have plans on retiring? How many people are counting on the stock market to carry you into old age? You know, and that's the reason the Rich Dad Company has been around for the last 20 years. We've been saying, maybe it's time you wake up. And today we have a very, very exciting guest. Her name is Rana. And Rana, if I, you know, have the name like Kiyosaki, I get butchered a lot of times. But if I do the same to you, <laughs> my it apologies. Go. Give it a go, and I'll correct you if I'm okay. wrong. If you're wrong. <laughs> Furuhar. There you go. You All got right. it. Furuhar. And, and she's the assistant managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. And the reason we came across you was I was cruising to the airport, and I saw the cover of Time Magazine, Fine Magazine, by the way. They've had me not on the cover, which is a good thing, but uh, they, they, <laughs> I an inside joke here. But anyway, uh, Time, is a, they did an interview with me also. And uh, anyway, fantastic. Or, you know, my dad was a Time Magazine, was as close to the Bible as it came, you know, so he... <laughs> Kind of inst- <laughs> not Newsweek time, you know that was kind of the oh, way of it course. went. Oh, of course, there are so, Time families and Newsweek families. So Absolutely. Robert, yeah, Robert. So Robert p- picked up this Time magazine called <laughs> Capitalism was the was the cover, and your your article was the the lead article. And he was in one part of the states, I was in another part of the states, and I picked up the same magazine, and I'm reading your article. I'm like, oh my god, we need to talk to this woman. And he's like, I'm reading the same article. And then we get your book, and uh, your book is Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. And you explain what has happened to Main Street business so well. So once again, the question oh, is... thank you so much. So the question is, today's program, does Wall Street care about Main Street? And should you be worried about your retirement, your kids' education, and the future? So the beauty of having Rana on is, as a writer... I am envious. She is a brilliant writer. She takes a complex and makes it simple enough for people like me to understand. So today we're going to have this very big conversation of what's really going on from Wall Street to Main Street. So welcome to the program, Rana. Welcome, Rana. Oh, thank you so much for having me, and thanks for all the kind words. I feel like my mother got to you guys. <laughs> well, she did pay us off. So. <laughs> so let's just start from the the beginning. Your 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 book is called Makers and Takers. So who's a maker and who's a taker? Well, um, you know, to answer the the first question that you all kind of posed, which is, does Wall Street care about Main Street? Um, I'm arguing that that many parts of the financial industry, many parts of Wall Street, are are takers. Um, 
it's not always how it was, and, and we can talk a little bit about how it changed. Um, the makers are real businesses, you know, real real industry across America, um, technology companies, airline companies, manufacturers, startups, mid-sized firms, basically any corporation that is really making something that creates jobs and real economic value. And some people might say, well, the finance industry does that, right? Well, it does, um, but to a certain extent, it is taking, at this point, much more than it's making. And, and one of the statistics in my book, which I'll share with you, is that Wall Street uh, creates about 4% of all the jobs in this country. And when I say Wall Street, I'm talking not just about banking, but about insurance companies and private equity companies and all, all sorts of complex financial institutions. They create about 4% of all American jobs. But guess what? They take a quarter of all corporate profits. So that's a lot of economic oxygen that is being taken out of the room by one industry. And my argument is that because finance has gotten so disproportionately big and powerful, it's actually slowing our economic growth and prosperity in this country. And, and Rana, you also say that, that of all the financial flow, the money flow that happens 15%, only 15% goes into the real economy, meaning businesses and, and the economy. 85% yeah. stays within the financial institutions. That's crazy. Yeah. It, it's, well, it's an amazing stat. And I have to say, I was just stunned when I came across uh, some of this academic research that I quote in my book. Um, you know, it's a big change because if you think about what the financial system was set up to do, you know, what Adam Smith, the father of modern capitalism, um, thought that the financial system was supposed to do. It's supposed to take all of our savings. We put our savings into banks, and those banks are supposed to lend that money back out to real businesses, real enterprises that are creating jobs and economic growth. But as I say, only 15% of the money in the financial system is now doing that. The rest of it is staying in this closed loop of trading and speculation and, and debt being issued against existing assets. So it's, it's become really, really dysfunctional. So what, do you, what does this all mean to Main Street, you know, to our listeners today? You know, like for yeah. me, for me personally, it was around 1978, 79, when that 401k came out. And that's when my rich dad yep. says, you better watch out, man. They're, <laughs> they're, they're going to put a vacuum cleaner in your pocket and they're going to suck. <laughs> They're, you know, they went from defined benefit pension plans to defined yeah. contributions. And he says, all that means you're going to contribute to Wall Street. That's what he said. And well, that's, that's what's happening. You know, rich, your rich dad was absolutely right. The fastest growing part of the financial industry right now is what's called the asset management business. And of those course. are the people that run those 401ks, right? Of course. And, you know, it's funny because we talk, we talk so much about too big to fail banks and the financial crisis and, you know, all that stuff's important. But actually, you've just hit, hit the nail on the head, which is that the, the biggest elephant in the room is the fact that all of our savings, our retirement savings, goes into this system that now we're charged, um, as you guys know, we're charged fees that are incredibly high for funds that most of the time, and only a small percentage of the time, outperform the market as a whole. And uh, it, it's just incredible. There's been some estimates that I quote in my book that between 30 to 60 percent of people's retirement nest egg is being eaten up by these unnecessary fees and charges from actively managed mutual funds that just don't 
outperformed the market. In fact, oftentimes they do much worse than the market. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Our very special guest today is Rana Furuhar, editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. And the question to her today is about her book, Makers and Takers. Extremely well-written book. Clear, lucid, simple enough for people like me to understand. And the question today, does Wall Street care about you? Or are they just taking your money? And my contention is they, you know, it's always a two-way street. They take your money, but they give it to people like me. And that's why I write. Because debt is money. And that's how we make our money is off of debt. But today we don't we don't even need a saver's savings to create debt. It can just be manufactured out of nothing from the central banks. And that has been the reason, you know, Rich Dad was started back in nineteen ninety six was because we could see this I call it a cash heist going on mm. all over the world. So that's our guest today. And uh, Kim, Kim just absolutely loves oh, I'm, I'm your eating, book. I'm eating this up, Rana. Rana, she doesn't listen to me, but she will listen to you. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going to talk, girl. Oh. We're going to talk. Hey, so here's my question because, you know, I think everybody yeah. is suspects or they have this feeling or they know that business is getting pushed aside and business has really been hijacked by finance. Yeah. When, what, what was the cause of this? When did it start? What, was, what happened? So this is this is really interesting. This was one of the most fun parts of doing this book was really to go back and see what happened. Because you're right, we all kind of look around and we just sort of know that there's this disconnection between Wall Street and Main Street. What I found is that um, back in the 1970s, growth in America started to slow. And um, in some ways that was natural because if you think about it, you know, after World War II, the American economy was the only game in town. You know, Europe was on its feet, having just been through the war. Um, Japan, same thing. Um, the emerging markets like China and Brazil and, and Russia hadn't really started to emerge yet. You know, they were still um, really not in the capitalist system. But by the 70s, that had all started to change. So America had more international competition. But um, one of the ways we could have responded to this at a, at a policy level in Washington is by saying, hey, you know, what can we do? What industries can we really grow in? What should we dominate? What are the things that we're doing best? And how can we help the real job creators in this country, the real makers, do it even better? Um, but, you know, those are hard things to do. It's, it's about um, training. It's about infrastructure. It's about education, all, all these big policy things. And so what politicians did was say, well, we don't really want to make those tough decisions and we don't want to lose votes in any of our constituencies by making choices um, between interest groups. So we're just going to pass the buck to the market. Um, so meaning, beginning, meaning, Wall, would, meaning Wall Street and the financial meaning world. Wall Street. That's right. We're going to say that uh, Wall Street can figure out how to grow the economy. And one key part of that was uh, in 1980, interest rates were deregulated. So that opened up the door for a lot of fancy financial products. Um, And, you know, I want to be fair. There were good reasons for this. It wasn't like anybody was trying to do something bad. You know, there were there were real, um, uh, real goals, you know, uh, making housing more affordable and, and um, creating new savings vehicles. But, you know, the financial industry is very clever, very innovative, um, and very quickly a lot of that got out of control. And you started to see complex financial products, high fees. And so from the 80s going upward, 
um, the whole banking industry, uh, the whole financial industry changed. So it went from being this sort of it's a wonderful life kind of model where, as I say, you put your savings in the bank and loan and the bank and loan puts it in Fred's house down the street um, or in Joe's new business. Um, that changed. And finance and Wall Street became much more interested in the trading and speculation around houses, stocks, bonds. And so the trading part of the industry, the risky part of the industry that is always what leads to financial crises and, and also is all about debt, as you were saying earlier, that part of the business took off. The lending part of the business started to slow. And here's the really interesting thing, that when you look at the number of startups, startup companies in this country, that also starts to flatten out and slow from the 80s onwards. So as finance is taking off, all different other kinds of businesses are slowing down. Entrepreneurship is going down. Um, research and development within big companies is going down because companies themselves start to act more like banks and speculate and, and deal in the business of moving money around rather than just making things. And I, I have a whole chapter of, about that in my book as well. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show, the good news and bad news about money. Our guest today is Rano Furuhar. And she is a manage, assistant managing editor at Time, great, great publication, and the magazine Economics Columnist. And when she, we came across Rana because Kim and I were both at airports in different parts of the world, and we just saw this cover of Time magazine. Like I said to Rana, it's my my dad swore by Time magazine, not Newsweek, when I was a kid. <laughs> and Time actually had the, Time actually did did an interview. And said, I love Time. But she's talking about what's happened between Wall Street and Main Street. And the question of today's Rich Dad show, does Wall Street really care about you, your little 401K, your house, your savings? And if you do, this is your program because it's time to wake up and smell the coffee. Any comments, Kim? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm thrilled with this book, Makers and Takers. And, um, Ron, what you say, the purpose of this book is to explain how the rise of finance has caused the fall of American business and how that's jeopardizing the American dream. So if you're thinking, hey, something's wrong in Main Street and something's wrong in the business world, you're absolutely right. Because what you're saying, Ron, is that the financial world now dictates to American business, where it used to be American business would dictate to finance. You call it the tail oh, is yeah. wagging the dog. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's interesting because it's become this kind of um, cultural line that we've we've bought, uh, hook, line, and sinker, you know, that finance is somehow the top of the economic pyramid that we're all supposed to aspire to, you know, that after we go from being a farming society to a manufacturing society to a services economy that finance is, is the very top of the pyramid and that's where everybody should want to be and, and I would argue just the opposite you know that if we remember the origins of our of our capitalist system and and how uh, the the markets are really supposed to work they're supposed to support business financial services there's a reason they call it service because you know they're they're supposed to be serving real businesses lending to them helping them to grow. But now it's quite the opposite. And, and actually, it's kind of interesting because um, when you look at corporate behavior, a lot of times, you know, you if you read the, um, the business pages of, of your local paper or any paper, you'll see companies making these decisions. And you just sort of scratch your head and say, why are they making these short-term decisions? Why are they laying off all these uh, workers? Why are they outsourcing to this or that country where they can't control quality as well? Well, 
Uh, it's what the financial markets, what Wall Street is telling them to do, because Wall Street wants profits now, today, like yesterday, if possible. And and you use um, a you and, use a you use a great example with, and it, it is about short term versus long term growth, short term term results. Mm-hmm. You use Microsoft, and you said that Microsoft yeah. announced this big new technology investment. They were going to invest all this money in new technology and new innovation, and when they announced it, their stock fell for two months. Yeah. And then yeah, a few months later, they say, okay, no, we're going to take $20 billion and we're going to buy back our stock. And as soon as they made that announcement, the share of their stocks go up. Yeah, for those who don't understand what a buyback means is that actually it was a, the company's treasury, their money, to borrow money to buy their own shares so the stock goes up so the CEO can cash in their yep. stock options. Yep. That's the game. And that's that why. That is the game. Yeah. And ladies and gentlemen, that's what's going on almost in every corporation across America in front of one of the darlings of Kim and I. It's Apple. You know, they have mm-hmm. so much money, but rather than bring the money all back onshore from overseas, they leave it offshore. And I think you, your, your number you quoted was $17 billion they borrow to goose their debt, I mean, to goose their stock price. And so the, yeah, the company it's, doesn't it's grow. Incredible. But the shareholders and Apple executives get richer as Steve Jobs twists in the grave, right? <laughs> yeah, I would say. I mean, it's interesting because um, Apple, so Apple is the lead story in my book, Makers and Takers. And I picked it because it's just the most crazy sort of bizarro world example of, of everything we're talking about here, where here's a company, richest, most profitable company you know, in history, probably. Um, they have about $200 billion sitting in bank accounts, many of them overseas and offshore tax havens. But they have borrowed billions and billions. I mean, they have commitments to borrow almost as much uh, as $200 billion in this country to issue all that debt. And what are they doing with it? They're not building new factories. They're not putting it into R&D. They're not um, you know, making the next iPod. They are paying back shareholders and big investors, um, activist investors like Carl Icahn, who um, has been pushing for these buybacks for some time and he's now. And been, he's been pushing um, on their CEO, Tim Cook, right? Because Steve Jobs would probably would have never right. gone for this, right? I mean, no, Steve Jobs would have not, not taken his phone call. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, well, let's but, hope uh, so. No, let's Tim, hope so. Yeah, no, Tim Cook is, uh, is, is very tight um, uh, with, with Icon. Although it's funny because, see, this, this kind of behavior, this short-term behavior can turn around and bite you. Because if you look just a few weeks back, Carl Icon was saying how this was a long-term play holding this stock. And he loved Apple. He was never going to sell Apple. Well, the minute they had bad news in their China sales, uh, he dumped the stock and the price went down, which just sh- shows you that once companies start playing this game of listening to short-term investors, listening to what Wall Street has to tell them, instead of really thinking about, hey, how can we create the most awesome goods and services possible, which, by the way, is exactly what Steve Jobs did. Yes. It, you know, it's just a black hole. You know, you cannot get out of that, that short-term feedback loop. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. We're talking to Rana Faruhar. She's the assisting managing editor at Time and the magazine's economics columnist. And like I say to everybody out here, as a writer who struggles at writing, it is nice to read an author and writer who writes clearly and succinctly on an extremely complex subject. So that's why, you know, Kim just loves makers and takers. I just started it. 
But Rana, she almost went through it in a couple of days. She, that's how. That's how yeah. great a writer. It was hard to put it down. It was yeah. hard to put it down. Oh my God! Uh, well, like, uh, in defense, well. she doesn't listen to me. But anyway, it's. I wanted to make it readable. So it's I'm very readable. It for those of you holding a four hundred one k and buying, holding, and praying that's going to keep going up, you must be smoking something. Or you're kind of hoping, you know, that, uh, Rana, this this financial planner told me, I was talking about negative interest rates, and she says, well, what about the mm. magic of compounding interest? I said, let me see if I've done my math. I'm not, I wasn't good at math either. Zero <laughs> squared is what? What is that? <laughs> you know? Z- zero to the yeah. N minus one quantity. What does that make it? And she goes, but she still believes in the magic of compounding interest. I'm going, are you kidding? Oh, and she gives financial well, I mean, advice to people. This whole thing about negative interest rates is, is so interesting. And this is part of my book, too, that, you know, one of the reasons that rates are so low and, and also that the, the Federal Reserve Bank, the Central Bank of America, has dumped $4 trillion into the economy over the last eight years and still, we have this really lackluster recovery. We can barely grow 2% a year. Um, we have become addicted to this easy money environment, you know, and, and it takes zero interest rates or near zero interest rates to get any growth at all. And to my mind, that's because over the last four decades, we have let the takers really, you know, take charge of the economy, and we need to get back to real underlying growth in Main Street businesses and so, support that if we want to be able to wean ourselves away from this. So let me, let's, let's get real specific. Right now, you're, let's say you're holding Apple, you know, and most mm-hmm. most pension funds and all those guys are holding Apple inside their thing and all this. Tim Cook has turned to the dark side. Going from He went from maker like Steve Jobs to taker called Icon and those guys. So if I'm holding Apple, let's say I got uh, you know, a small 10,000 shares of Apple at $100 a share. What would you say mm-hmm. to me? If you got $10,000, $10, sorry, 10,000 shares of Apple at $100 a share, um, I mean, you know, I would say to you that I think Apple and most of the other blue chip stocks um, in the average portfolio today are tapped out because if you look at uh, the record number of share buybacks that have been done in the last two years. It's not just Apple. I mean, we're sort of picking on Apple here because it's a, a big, big target. But all companies um, in America, all blue chip companies have been doing record amounts of share buybacks. Now, why do they do that? They do that because they're trying to jack up the share price of companies that are not able to do that themselves with real earnings growth. So but, that tells me but we're in it, for a correction. Yeah, isn't it a lot of the a lot of the CEOs they're paid in stock options and stock options are taxed at capital gains rates, not not ordinary income. Well, that's right. And and this is one of the things I explore in my book. Um, there were there were actually some changes um, during Bill Clinton's administration that I argue are are part of this problem too. So um, just to do a little history here, buybacks themselves uh, were illegal until 1982, and then under Ronald Reagan, they became legal. So before that, they were considered market manipulation. And by the way, just pause for a moment to consider that something that was once considered market manipulation is now like normal business practice for everybody. That's kind right. of interesting. Now, fast forward to Bill Clinton. There were some changes 
in the way that executive compensation got paid out where compensation over a million dollars, if it was paid out as performance-based bonuses in stock options, you were allowed to make it tax deductible. So, of course, at that point, all the CEOs started taking more and more and more pay in stock options, and then you get this perverse cycle that you're talking about where our corporate leaders have every incentive to want to just jack up the share price short term because, hey, that's how they're getting their pay. So the, so the stock market isn't creating new jobs. It's not building new innovative products. It's not solving problems. Yet the economy is doing well because the stock market's up. But business is well, lagging yeah, tremendously. Yeah. And I mean, let's, let's think about the numbers, too. 10% of the population owns 80% of the stock. So, you know, this kind of um, money high, this sugar high, it only affects a certain percentage of the population. Most people, most middle class people in America still keep the majority of their wealth in housing. And the housing recovery has been very, very spotty. I mean, you know, in some markets, coastal markets, a few of them are doing great. You know, a few, maybe Chicago, Austin, a few like that. But a lot of the country has still not come back from the housing crisis. And people are really struggling because that's where they still keep most of their wealth. Once again, it's Robert Kiyosaki, the Rich Dad Radio Show. Our guest today is Rana Faruhar. She's assisting managing editor of Time and, and the magazine's economics columnist. She's the author of Makers and Takers, A Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. I suggest every one of you read this book. Yes. It's a great book. It's clear. It's factual. It's on target, and it's easy to understand. So when we come back again, the, the question of today's program is, does Wall Street care about Main Street? One is they can listen to this program again. Repetition means listen to this program one more time. Your attention will go up by 70%. Then you discuss it with friends, family, and business associates. Your retention will go through the roof. Because we're talking about possibly the most important subject. You know, I mean, I don't know anybody yet who doesn't use money. And, you know, the, the, the grind from myself personally and the Rich Dad Company is why doesn't our schools teach us about money? You know, they teach us to go to school, work for money, save money, get out of debt, and invest for the long term in the stock market. And I think that is the most ridiculous advice possible today, given the stats. You know, we have zero interest rates. Why would you save money? Debt is money, mm-hmm. in case you haven't got the word yet, but you can't get debt. And most importantly, the stock market is an all-time high, affected now by a thing called HFT, high-frequency trading. And yet, people are saving money and investing for the long term. I, I think it's absolutely ridiculous. So our guest today is Rana Furuhar. She is Assistant Managing Editor at Time, the magazine's economic columnist. She has a book Kim and I both highly recommend you read today. It's the big picture of what's happening. She's the author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance, and The Fall of American Business. Please get the book and get the picture, the big picture, (laughs) because most people are still trying to save a few bucks and you're getting it ripped off. It's a good point what you're talking about. I mean, savers today have very little incentives. You know, our tax code really does not reward savings and investment. It no, definitely they rewards you. debt. They punish you. Yeah, they punish you for sure. Savings are taxed at ordinary income. Why would you save money? It doesn't make sense to me. Okay, and so and so, let me ask you this. So our, our job here at the Rich Dad Company is to get people to wake up, to get – get them information mm. of what's really going on in the world. And so they're sitting there and going, well, this is Wall Street. This is big business. I am not really involved in it. Yet Wall Street, you're saying, actually is creating a thing called inflation of food. 
your food prices are going up. Have you been to the food store lately? Oh, you see yeah. that your food prices yeah. are going up, and you're saying that's a direct response to Wall Street. How so? Oh, ab- absolutely. So um, one of the things I talk about in my book is how there's been so many changes in laws over the last 40 years about how Wall Street is allowed to operate and what businesses it can be in. And there used to be rules <clears throat> excuse me, about banks owning physical commodities, wheat, grain, corn, oil, gas, silver, aluminum. Remember the Hunt Brothers and silver, oh, yeah. you know, back oh, yeah. you know, many, many years ago? Well, okay, it used to be that a big financial institution, Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, that they couldn't own physical commodities because that's literally the stuff that, you know, we have to eat, that our homes are made of, that, that we put in our cars. Well, there were some changes that allowed financial institutions to get into the business, not only of trading those things, but also of owning them. And and one of my favorite stories in the book um, is a story about a few years back, Goldman Sachs uh, was found to be uh, influencing – there were accusations that they were influencing the aluminum market. Really? um, By – yes, by buying up large quantities of aluminum – and basically hoarding them in warehouses. And, and it's funny because there are laws that say you have to move that aluminum in and out of warehouses uh, at certain time periods. And the idea is to avoid hoarding. Well, all they were doing is literally putting the aluminum on a forklift and driving the forklift. Oh, no. So they were moving it. The left, they were moving it. They were moving it. They were moving it. Isn't that called, <laughs> Ronna, isn't that called innovation? I call that innovation. Well, like, it's like creative. Like said, the last innovation in banking was the ATM machine. But, uh, <laughs> but – uh, uh, you know, so this is just an example, and I get into in chapter um, in chapter six of my book. I get into how all this trading, stockpiling, and trading of physical commodities, be it aluminum or oil or or food, corn, grain, has contributed to price volatility. It's contributed to the fact that over the last several years, you've seen oil go up to one hundred and forty-eight dollars uh, a barrel, and then you've seen it plunge down to the twenties. I mean, that kind of volatility makes real business. Very, very difficult to do. You know, if you're an airline and you don't know what the price of oil is going to be from one day to the next, it makes things very hard. Or worse yet, if you're a starving person in Africa and you don't know, you know what the price of corn is going to be, these are things that really affect real people's lives. Um, and and it's, a, it's a huge problem. So same in the food industries. You're, they're, they're jacking up the stock prices, which jacks up the price of our exactly. food. Exactly. It's still a manipulated that's right, game. That's right. You can, and, you know, actually the aluminum uh, example that I mentioned to you, um, companies like Coke and Coors were very upset about all this because, of course, they have to make their cans out of this stuff. And then they pass on that price to all of us, and the cost of your six-pack or your, uh, your bottle of Coke goes up. And the other thing about this whole thing is that they don't count in inflation food prices or housing. So that's how they can get yeah. away with saying there's no inflation, just just FYI out there. Again, Rana, the, you know, this whole question is, at the Rich Dad Show, I've told you, is that Kim and I are hundreds of millions of dollars in debt because debt is money. So we finance the way you describe in your book. We're basic, we, we produce education, but we finance via the methods you talk about in your book. And the average person, as much as they may try, cannot, will, will not and should not do what we do. So if you're sitting there right no. now with your 401K and, you know, your 100000 in savings, what would you say to them? Well, you know, one thing that just to, just to go to a, a different topic, one thing that a lot of people do is they try and use their house 
um, and pull money out of their house. And that's something that policies have actually encouraged in the last couple of decades in particular, where, you know, people take home equity loans or um, because we're able to deduct the mortgage interest from our taxes, that people buy more home than they should really have. And this is something that I find very concerning because you see this run up in, in asset prices and home prices. I live in New York, for example, and I bought my home in Brooklyn at the, what I thought was the top of the market in 2007. Um, the price has actually doubled since then. So, um, you know, it, this is great for me, you know. I mean, I, I'm a fairly affluent person. It's not great for people um, that are taking on too much housing debt, and then if there's a collapse in the market, they're left, uh, they're left holding the bag. And I do think in stocks, too, I mean, the savviest investors believe that we are in for a correction because if you look at where stocks are and how they've been pumped up with money from the Fed and what's really happening in a lot of these companies, it's not like that, that money is going to R&D or new product development. In fact, if you look at the investment into real new technologies and, and research and development in companies, it's been going down just as finance has been rising. Isn't so that, but, but, at some point, that correct. But, Rana, isn't that your whole premise or your rant is that we're just mm-hmm. playing games my rant, with stock yeah. price? <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? It's, it's my rant, too. I'm going, they're just playing games with this whole thing. And the average person sits there with their 401k and their 100k in savings that got their condo or house in the desert or wherever they have it, and they're wondering what's going to happen next. You know, the S&P is now slated to come down about 15 to 20 percent this summer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you're going to start seeing. I mean, probably some people have followed the kind of um, public pension crisis in places like Illinois. You know, I think that you're going to see more states and more cities struggling. To, um, to to give back their promised returns because returns are just not going to be as high, I don't believe, in the next 20 to 30 years as they have been over the last oh, 40 because oh, we're oh, sort of oh, we're oh, tapped out. Oh, 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 oh. Those, those pension fund guys, they base their whole assumption on 8% growth of the stock market per year. They must be smoking yeah, something. Right. So, so is one of your yeah. so is one of your tips that, number one, things are not going to get better and you need to prepare for... A downturn yeah, of your need, income? What What do you people, do? People need to be much more conservative in terms of what they think they're going to get out of their portfolios in the current environment. I mean, we have been in a very Including your 401ks and your RIAs. Including your 401k. Hey, yeah. Rana, Rana yeah, what, what, hard. The, what the heck does conservative mean? I've always wondered what that meant. That means you believe in well, some religious guy or something? <laughs> No, no, no. I'm talking about economic. <laughs> Look, I'm talking about economically conservative. I, I grew up in the rural Midwest. Um, my my father is an immigrant, runs a small manufacturing business. I was raised in a very kind of fiscally conservative way, I would say. Um, but I think to your point, a lot of people have been thinking that they're going to get eight percent returns. That I mean. Get it. You're going to be lucky to get half that. Ronald, really quickly, what does conservative mean? I mean, you can't save money at a 0% interest rate. And why would you invest well, in the long and term? Where do you put your money yes. when you're not making anything saving it? Yes. Amen. Um, and, you know, I mean, it is a very, very difficult thing to um, – to, to do, and I think that it depends on where you live. I mean, I, honestly, I've done pretty well in my home in Brooklyn, New York. I don't think that, that would be the case for everybody around the country. Um, it's the S and P 500 is 
hasn't corrected to the extent that it might have given all the easy money because you look around the rest of the world and we're st- the U.S. is still kind of uh, what you know you might call the the cleanest dirty shirt. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Yeah. China is on the verge of I mean having a, a proper recession there. Well, so for example, Ronald, one thing that one thing we talk about is for people if they're an employee to start a part-time business. You know, to start mm-hmm. take, taking control. Um, that's one way to take control. It's something that you could do for low risk, especially given the Internet today. Yeah, I think that the way a lot of people, frankly, are putting together portfolio careers and also monetizing their existing assets. What does that know, mean, with, um, portfolio careers? Well, well, it means, you know, doing basically three jobs. We're all kind of living in the gig economy. I'm not saying that this is ideal, but, um, you know, the way in which, say, teachers are now um, spending their summers driving for Uber or people mm-hmm. are renting out their homes by Airbnb. I mean, I think that there folks are looking for a lot of different ways to increase incomes because incomes haven't risen themselves really since the early 1990s. So that's the new normal that El Arian talks the about. The new normal. Right? Yeah. Yeah, three, three jobs, you know, the three-job economy well, basically. <laughs> I mean, that is a good point because that is the innovation, isn't it, that's happening? Uber and Airbnb and the, all the mm-hmm. rental, renting out, your, renting out things that you have that maybe you can make money on. Right. And, and you see that um, really contributing to a lot of people's bottom lines. It's interesting. I did a, a big interview with Travis Kalanick, who runs Uber, uh, a few months ago for Time. And I was startled to learn that about 50 percent of their drivers in America work less than 10 hours a week. So that means these are not professional cab drivers that are now driving for Uber. These are soccer moms and teachers and, um, you know, older people that maybe want to supplement that pension, which, as we just said, is not going to be where they thought it was by doing a little part-time work. So I think you're going to see more and more of those kinds of lifestyle shifts. So, Ronna, the, you know, the, um, the first question I have to ask you, what happens when Google or GM or Ford or Mazda comes up with a driverless car? What happens to Uber drivers then, you know? That's, that's very good question. I mean, we could do a whole other show I on know. the disruptive <laughs> and, impacts of technology. And then the last question I have, did you do any articles on the pension crisis, like you talked about <laughs> Illinois and all that? Yes. Um, I have done a, a lot of coverage of Detroit, you know, and what and what happened there. And um, I do think that there are going to be a number of cities and states that are really going to be struggling with this issue. Well, I um, have. Sa- you know, Sacramento. Oh, Stockton, Sacramento, San Bernardino. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's interesting, too, because uh, those cities are in my book because they're still struggling to come out from the housing crisis, many of these places. So so one of the biggest tips I'm hearing is don't expect what you think you're going to get. Don't think everything's going to be the norm. Don't think that your pension's going to be fine. Wake up. Do something different. Baby, this house is coming down as predicted. If you're saving money, going back to school for a new job, and you know, hoping to your house will appreciate in value, it might. But also, this baby is coming down on the stock market. So, thank you to Rana Faruhar. Her book is Makers and Takers. Please read the book. It's the rise of finance and the fall of American business, and maybe that'll motivate you to say, well, maybe, you know, my 401k may not keep me alive. You know, maybe I should do something different. Or maybe I'm being ripped off, and maybe I should do something different. And maybe I shouldn't listen to my financial planner or my banker. Maybe I should listen to somebody else. So get her book, 
Coming in comments. No, <laughs> from listening to our show, you know that what's going on is being manipulated, and um, there's a Lied lot of to. there's a lot lot of lies out there. This book explains a lot of what's happened to American business, but not just American business because it's business Whoa. all over the world. And once again, you can submit your questions to Ask Robert to RichAdRadio.com. First question, Melissa. Our first question today comes from Greg in Riverside, California. Favorite book: Rich Dad Poor Dad. He says, you criticize Wall Street for being able to get politicians to bail them out of their mistakes. Is it possible that just as you have figured out how to do what the government wants you to do, is it not also possible that Wall Street has done the same thing? We all now know. See, I've been, you know, I'm, I met Kim in 1984, and I've been saying this to her since 84. But the thing here is this. It's not just what Wall Street wants you to do. It's what the government wants you to do. It's the banks want you to do. So that's what Kim and I do. So you can say, well, that's not fair because we use debt. We don't save money. So why are you saving money? That's the question. None of the, you know, we don't have a 401k in the rich dad company. Why? Because you're getting ripped off by it. So do you still have a 401k? So the point here is this. You can say, well, it's not fair. And I agree it's not fair, but that's why I have the rich dad company. So the question is, who are you listening to? What are you going to study? And what are you going to do? And I would say this is that you know, what, what Rana talks about in her book is how finance, Wall Street, has hijacked American business, Main Street business. And when I read it, I get I get angry because it's all based on greed. It's all based on the bottom line. It's not about growing businesses. It's not about growing the economy. It's about how much is in it for me. And I don't think I'm going to change Wall Street. So why not use what they're doing right now to your advantage at, for right now? That's what we do. We, we, we use the rules to our advantage right now. That's what we do. That's the. That's what are you going to do about it? Next question, Melissa. Well, Greg has a second part to his question. He says, Glass-Steagall removed the barriers for banks to do derivatives. Was that a deal cut between big business and the government at the government's direction? Or was it big business that got the government to remove something they did not like? It was, according to my teacher, Dr. R. Buckminster Fuller, he wrote about it in 1983, it was called The Grunch of Giants, G-R-U-N-C-H. I don't recommend you read the book, but I do recommend you read uh, Rana Faruha's books. You understand how you're being ripped off. I understood this back in 1983, and I changed direction. It was also around that time my rich dad said to me, he talked to me about investing in gold, because gold was only $72 an ounce, but he also says, watch out for that 401K. They're going to rip you off even more. So the whole point of the question is, is Glass-Steagall designed to rip you off? No, it was designed to make the rich richer. Now, it makes Kim and I richer, but it's not making most people richer. The question is, as we always say at Rich a coin has three sides, heads, tails, and edge. You still want to stand on the side of the losers? You go ahead. But it takes financial education to stand on the side of the Glass-Steagall Act and make money by investing with debt. That's what we do. The banks give us as much money as we want because we play the games the banks want us to play. As I've always said in Rich Dad and all these things, the banks never ask me for my report card. Banker doesn't care if you had an A or B or C or you went to some good college. The banker just wants to see your financial statement. That's what the cash flow game is about. That's what Rich Dad Poor Dad is about. That's what the cash flow quadrant's about. Man, you better get over to the side that's winning or you're going to stay on the side that's losing. Which one is up to you? Unfortunately, you cannot get to the side of the winning on the Glass-Steagall side if you just go to college. That's the problem. 
And I'm going to, again, recommend Makers to Take Us and listen to this show again, but get this book. Because I'll, I'll tell you what Rana says here about Glass-Steagall. She says what, what put the nail in the coffin for Glass-Steagall was the creation of Citigroup, which was Sandy, Sandy Weil. Weil, Travelers Group, an insurance and investment firm, and Citicorp Bank. And what it did is created this huge financial conglomerate. And here's the funny thing. She says Weil made the final blow to Glass-Steagall with the creation of Citigroup in 1998. That event got a rubber stamp by then-Treasury Secretary Robert Rubin, who shortly afterward would go on to become the co-chair of Citigroup. Interesting. You guys get get the picture here? You're getting screwed. Now, you can sit there and wonder what's going to happen. You can stay on the side of the losers, or you can say, well, you know, they they passed Glass-Steagall, and that's illegal. Good. Now you're highly educated, like most academics— who can't do anything because you have no financial education. you got to take some action pretty quickly. So that's what the Rich Dad program is about. So I'm glad Rana wrote her book, Makers and Takers. Hopefully this book will kick you in the butt and say maybe I better make some changes. Because if you don't, I'm afraid you're going down with the ship. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Trent in Brooklyn, New York. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It says, why is the Fed considering raising rates? Who knows what the Fed does, but they're run by a bunch of academics. <laughs> Fed doesn't know what they're doing. They are the, – the company, the business that hires the most PhDs in economics is called the Fed. They're not American. They're not a bank. They have no reserves, and they don't need your money. They just, they just manipulate the economy. So the reason the Fed is saying we're going to raise rates is for one reason. They want to get you out of savings. They want you to start either buying something like a new Toyota or they want you to buy some stocks and or they want you to start a business. They say, we're going to raise the rates here. <laughs> Look, at negative interest rates, nobody's going to do anything. So they keep depressing the interest rates so you take some risk. So you take some risk. And as I've said on most of our programs, as financial planner, really nice woman, you know, she questioned my thing. She said, what about the magic of compounding interest? I said, what's the compounding of zero? Well, what is the rule of 72? The rule of 72, if you're getting paid 10% interest, it means your money doubles in 7.2 years. But when interest rates are zero, have you got the message yet? They don't want your savings because they don't need your savings. And that's why at Rich Dad, we've always said, savers are losers. A bigger question is, now that you're highly educated, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay on one side of the Glass-Steagall Act, or are you going to stand on the other side of it? I made my decision a long time ago. I don't agree with them, but Kim and I use debt. We don't save money. That's the big part of it here, because cash is trash. A bigger question is this, is what is what kind of money are you saving? Because one of the bigger problems we have is the dollar's pretty good but it's going to get weaker. The reason Kim and I save gold and silver is because for thousands of years, gold and silver has been money. Now, I know guys of you who are in Bitcoin and all those other things and Google and, and Microsoft are all coming out with their own currencies. It's called mobile phone money. You can just you can transact just with a mobile phone, and that's coming. But there's one big problem is money is based upon trust. Trust. The question is, who do you trust? Well, I don't trust necessarily in God, but I do trust in gold and silver. And that's why right now the question you need to make is what kind of money are you saving? Is it dollars, Bitcoin, gold, or silver? That's really the question. 
So, Melissa, what's the next question? Look, you guys, the question is, what is money and what kind of money are you going to work for and hold? For Kim and I, it's gold and silver. It's manipulated. They don't, the government and tax department does not want you to hold gold and silver. But that's why I want to hold it more than, more than ever before. You don't hold gold and silver to make money. You hold it as insurance against corruption. Trust is the name of the game. Next question, Melissa. Our next question comes from Abraham in Minnesota. Favorite book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. It says, based on the status of the U.S. dollar, wouldn't it make more sense to put foreign investment into your portfolio? Even if you receive dollar-denominated profit, isn't the dollar's value weakened by so many other things? Well, you can do what you like, but to me, that's far more complex. I mean, I don't like the stock market because I don't control the stock market. And I don't like foreign company countries because I don't control that. I don't know if you've heard me say it. I don't buy stocks. I buy options anyway. Like a mortgage is just an option, but that's financially education. So you can do what you like. But the big problem here is this. China is about to go down. So is America. Odds are, and I could be wrong, is they're going to print more money. That's what's going to happen. So if they're printing more money, as, as Kim was talking to Rana about, then food prices go up and home prices go up and possibly commodity prices go up. But we don't know. The reason I'm thankful that you listen to this program is at least we're asking you to think. Kim and I tell you what we do. We use debt as money because after 1971, money became debt when Nixon took us off the gold standard. Then in 74, we became the petrodollar. So you wonder why we're at war in the Middle East is because the U.S. dollar went from gold to nothing to backed by oil. So now we have wars. And if you still think that going to college is going to save you from all this, better think again. So I thank you for listening to the Rich Dad program. I thank Rana Faruhar. She's the author of Makers and Takers, The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business. I think she says it right there. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.